Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. It's one thing in politics to run a good campaign to successfully perform the compulsory tests and seize moments accumulating victories in the march to your nomination. It's another thing, though, to construct yourself as a candidate during your campaign, to choose a route that you design and use that route not simply to gain delegates, but to bypass the accepted system that elevates men in your party and raise your own stature. That's what John Kennedy did during the 1960 primaries and in the West Virginia primary in particular. Eisenhower zoomed around the party establishment in 1952, as you'll remember, but he was the successful allied commander. He walked several feet tall above other mortal men. This wasn't the case for John Kennedy. He was handsome, of course. He had the Pulitzer Prize, PT-109 and all that. He had a good biography. But we saw how hard it was for Eisenhower to get past the bosses in his own party, so it was no easy thing for Kennedy to do that. Kennedy, by winning this primary in West Virginia, elevated his stature. It's a precursor to what Barack Obama did in 2008 and what Marco Rubio wants to do in this election in 2016. How did Jack pull it off? With the help of the Caroline, a dead-end rabble of anti-Catholic bigots, and a confused press corps. Our story after a word from our sponsor. The Great Courses gives me joy, and here's a new lecture series from them, The Modern Political Tradition, Hobbes to Habermas. It's a look at how theorists over the centuries have pondered how the state should best be governed. Order from one of the eight best-selling courses from The Great Courses, including The Modern Political Tradition, and you'll get 80% off the original price. So go today to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our whistle stop begins today aboard a 1948 Convair 240 aircraft purchased by Joseph Kennedy from American Airlines. Reclining in one of the plane's 14 seats is the senator from Massachusetts. He's a little grumpy and he's not speaking because laryngitis has taken his voice. The plane was descending into Charleston, West Virginia, where Kennedy had never expected to have a fight. But now he has a desperate fight on his hand and he's in a panic. Since 1957, Jack Kennedy had been traveling the country, making speeches, shaking hands, helping other Democrats in their election fights, and building his own campaign organization as he went. As Teddy White wrote in The Making of the President, no Democrat, not even Adlai Stevenson, spoke in more states, addressed more Jefferson-Jackson Day dinners, participated in more local and mayoralty campaigns of deserving Democrats than did John F. Kennedy. When I'm asked why candidates start so early in this perpetual campaign season, this is one of the reasons. Successful campaigns are emulated, and Kennedy's success in 1960 was built on having started so very early, all the way back in 1957. He was also commissioning polls as early as 1958 for the 1960 race. So like many things in our modern campaign life, the excessive attention to imagery, the primacy of campaign books and the production of verite accounts with the latest video cameras after the campaign is over, we can blame all of those things on Kennedy's success in 1960. And starting early and doing all of that spade work is another thing that he gets credit for. When Kennedy announced his campaign, actually announced it, on Saturday, the 2nd of January, 1960, two things were notable, maybe more than two. First, it was 1960. So even though he'd been campaigning since 1957, he waited till the election year to announce. So now we have candidates who start as early as Kennedy did, but then they announce even earlier, in part because they're raising money. 
and the campaign fundraising laws mean they have to start earlier, even though they try to run in that twilight candidate, non-candidate areas so they can raise money for super PACs. But as we learn in the, or are learning in the campaign of 2016, super PAC money ain't what it used to be. You need those hard dollars so you have to you have to announce so that you can get money that you can use in your actual campaign. Another thing about Kennedy, and of course, Kennedy didn't need to raise that kind of money because he had that kind of money himself, which we'll talk about later. But the other interesting thing about Kennedy's announcement on January 2nd, 1960, was he did it in the Senate caucus room. In this age of the outsider, candidates announced their campaigns at nearly the furthest physical location from that dirty Congress where liberties of the nation are strangled and people's hopes are repeatedly trammeled. Also, it was on a Saturday. Who does that? Nobody's watching cable on Saturday. Nobody's watching broadcast television. Well, back in 1960, people read their Sunday papers. And if you wanted to get good placement in the Sunday papers, you did your announcing on a Saturday. Kennedy laid down the gauntlet in this announcement to his opponents, saying the Democratic primary elections were the true testing ground for the candidates, saying those seeking to compete with him should do so in the primaries. He specifically mentioned Senators Lyndon Johnson of Texas and Stuart Symington of Missouri, suggesting that if his rivals couldn't beat him in the primaries, they wouldn't be able to beat Nixon in the fall. Nice try, Senator. Kennedy was trying to change the playing field for the nomination, saying that the primaries were the thing, not the views of the old bulls and party bosses who preferred those other candidates he had mentioned. Kennedy's hope was that through victories, he could create a national movement for his candidacy, but also raise his stature. Many of the old school Democrats still believed he was too young, too Catholic, and too inexperienced to receive his party's nomination. At 42, he was the youngest presidential candidate in U.S. history. Obama used the process to elevate himself in a similar way. David Axelrod writes in his book about that campaign. In a memo he wrote to Obama, he said, the campaign itself is also a proving ground for strength. How you respond to the inevitable challenges you'll face will reveal much about your strength and preparedness for the job. So hurl yourself into a campaign, and then when you handle the craziness, people will think, oh, well, he may never have run anything in his life, but he's doing okay running his campaign. In fact, when Bill Clinton won in 1992, Dan Quayle said, well, if he runs the country as well as he ran his campaign, we'll be all right. So we can trace that notion back to John Kennedy. This wasn't really a new strategy in presidential politics. We've heard about how Eisenhower did it in 52, using the primaries to build his political base. But there were also Democrats who tried to do the same thing. In 1952 and 56, Senator Estes Kefauver had tried to play the insurgent candidate, defying the party establishment. He had no chance of winning the nomination based on support of the party leaders, so he joined in the primaries. He won 12 of 15 of those primaries in 1952, starting in New Hampshire. Uh, but the nomination that year went to Adlai Stevenson, who appeared in none of the primaries. And that's because most states still chose their delegates to the Democratic Convention through the state conventions, not the primaries. And the state conventions were the ones dominated by the party bosses, especially the mayors and the governors of large northern and midwestern states and cities. And they were the bosses that Kefauver had gone after in his investigations of organized crime. And so they really didn't like Kefauver. So... He didn't get the nomination in 52, despite having won those primaries. And when he tried the same thing again in 1956, it also didn't work. So in 1959, the view, the conventional view, was that the primary route to the nomination was dead. Well, Kennedy had a few things that Kefauver didn't. Before the West Virginia primary that we're going to get to, Kennedy had to get through Wisconsin. And if we were not preparing for a Democratic debate this week, we'd turn this into a two-part series and probably do the whole thing in iambic pentameter and maybe play the spoons too. But uh, we can't do all of that 
we can't achieve those heights. So we're going to keep this a one-parter, uh, and you'll forgive me for that. But we do and should spend some time in Wisconsin. And so here's why Wisconsin is so important. Here was the situation in Wisconsin. Hubert Humphrey was a formidable candidate. He was from a neighboring state. Strategists said he'd basically won those bordering counties in Wisconsin that, that Kennedy shouldn't even bother with them. And Humphrey was a liberal, closer to the state's tradition. That meant he had also the support of the state's local liberal papers. As Edmund Kalina writes in his account of the 1960 primary, one Madison newspaper ran a headline on March 31st about the endorsement of Kennedy by the Alabama governor, John Patterson. The headline read, Bama Governor Negro Hater in Kennedy Camp. But Kennedy had his own strengths, the most important one being that he was a Catholic and there were a great deal of Catholics in Wisconsin. He also had a few other things going for him that Kefauver didn't have, uh, and that made him a formidable candidate. He campaigned in a way that no one had ever seen before. He had money and volunteers and a kind of touch on the campaign trail. When he met someone important, they'd inevitably receive a handwritten note. He also had that pollster working for him and used those numbers the pollster came back with to greater use, put them to greater use than any previous candidate before. Although even back then, polls uh, were as questionable. There was a period when we get to the end of Wisconsin, where basically Lou Harris, Kennedy's pollster, was, um, was off in his uh, guess about how the state would go. Humphrey complained that he was being outspent and outglamored. It was an unusually cold winter, too, which made things very difficult uh, for Humphrey. So by the end of March, Milwaukee had accumulated 90 inches of snow. And Kennedy was flying around in that cool plane that his dad had bought him. But Humphrey had to drive in his campaign bus, which was old and cold. And to catch sleep, he had to sleep on an army cot in the back while bumping along on the highways. The Minnesota senator said Jackie and Rose Kennedy, who were campaigning for Jack, were, quote, the queen and queen mother moving among the commoners, extracting obeisance, awe, and respect. They lacked only tiaras. And you knew if crowns were needed, Joe Kennedy would buy them. I felt like an independent merchant competing against a chain store. Until late March, things were going well for Kennedy. This money and his family and all those volunteers were uh, creating lots and lots of support for him. The Lou Harris poll showed him way ahead in nine of the 10 districts. There was speculation among the press that he would sweep the states. But then in the middle of the Wisconsin primary fight, the religious issue broke out into the open anti-Catholic leaflets started to appear. And there was some evidence to suggest that the mailings might have been to Catholic households. In other words, by pro-Kennedy supporters mailing the anti-Catholic leaflets to Catholics to get them to turn out to support him against the Protestants. Then an ad appeared in a Wisconsin newspaper from a Humphrey supporter. It, it supported what was called a square deal for Humphrey. And it basically argued that the solidarity of the Catholic vote for Kennedy meant that Humphrey was not getting a square deal. And it essentially, in the ad, sent the signal to Protestants that they should go out and support Humphrey. The key issue here is not so much that it threatened Kennedy's chances in the primary, but that religion was being tattooed on his candidacy. Wisconsin would soon come to be seen as a religious fight. And therefore, if Kennedy won, it would be seen as a victory for Catholics. Kennedy was trying to use these primary contests as proof of his skills, and whether you're baptized a Catholic is not a skill. And so his whole gambit here to use the primaries was being undone by this 
back and forth between Catholics and Protestants. I should note that 35% of Wisconsin voters were Catholic, so it was a big deal. And since anyone could vote in the Democratic primary, the theory was that Catholics would just turn out even if they were Republicans. So it's getting to be a bigger problem for Kennedy, who's trying to use this as a sign of his of his political skills. In the end, he won 56% of the vote, and it should have been a huge victory. But because of that religious cast, the press chalked the victory up to just basically the Catholics. And Kennedy and his team, who had been inspired by Lou Harris's polls, kind of led up in the end, and they were clearly behaving as if they were going to totally trounce Humphrey. So it was that old expectations thing again. Everybody expected him to win by even more than 56. So when he won by 56, it wasn't that big a deal. To show you just how nuts things got, in terms of this question of the Catholic versus the Protestant, on election night, when CBS newsman Walter Cronkite cited analyst Elmo Roper, also a pollster, Uh, Roper's analysis was that religion is playing a rather important issue in the election here today and that every Republican Catholic who crossed over to vote in the Democratic primary intended to vote for Kennedy, while GOP Protestants had crossed over and split their vote between Kennedy and Humphrey. Cronkite then interviewed Kennedy and asked him about the religious nature of the vote. And afterward, Bobby Kennedy was so furious, he screamed at Cronkite. He later then called IBM President Thomas Watson and asked him to suppress the analytical analysis of the religious voting patterns in Wisconsin. Meanwhile, Kennedy himself, JFK, phoned Frank Stanton, the president of CBS, and reminded him that if he, Kennedy, were elected, he would be naming the members of the Federal Communications Commission. So they played hardball back then. That's how much, though, the Kennedys didn't want the victory to be seen as a Catholic victory. Well, too late. The next day's headlines read, Religion, Big Factor in Kennedy Victory. That was the New York Times. The Washington Post read, Triumph for Kennedy, Not Up to Expectations. So that's how the Humphrey forces could be quoted in the press after losing, claiming that they had won a victory in Wisconsin. The interpretation for Kennedy was bad because it suggested he'd done well only because of his faith. And when he went into states where there weren't so many Catholics, he wouldn't do so well. So that meant not only was he not going to get the nomination, but it threw shade on his chances to beat Nixon in November. So all of this encouraged Humphrey to stay in the race. He thought the calls for him to drop out were coming from the Kennedy camp. And again, of course, they were. Um, And the Kennedy camp thought Humphrey was just staying in because he was a stalking horse for Lyndon Johnson and Senator Stevenson. Humphrey scoffed at that charge. He said, politics is a serious business, not a boys game, where you can pick up your ball and run home if things don't go according to your idea of who should win. So he was trying to frame Kennedy's suggestions he should get out of the race as an attempt by Kennedy to behave like a spoil sport. But here's the thing. The good news for Kennedy was that Humphrey stayed in the race because it was by having a tough fight in West Virginia that Kennedy could, in fact, exponentially grow that stature that he had tried to build through simple victories of of the primaries. Well, when the victories didn't get simple, that gave him that much more bigger of a prize to win. (laughs) Of course, Kennedy didn't feel that way at the time. So when he pulls into West Virginia, he finds that the polls had wildly reversed from 1959. In 1959, a Harris poll had showed he was beating Humphrey in the state by 54 to 23 percent. But then, upon heading into the primary, Kennedy trailed his opponent by 20 points in one of the key counties. They only pulled one county at the time. 
as Kennedy's, one of Kennedy's advisors explained the discrepancy in the polls this way. No one in West Virginia knew you were a Catholic in December. Now they know. In West Virginia, Catholics represented just 5% of the population. Kennedy's strategy as he came into the state was to just bury the religious issue. That's why they had tried to suppress those numbers from IBM, why they had yelled at CBS. They didn't want this to be part of the conversation. And here's one of the reasons why. This is a woman quoted by Teddy White. We've never had a Catholic president, and I hope we never do. Our people built this country. If they had wanted a Catholic to be president, they would have said so in the Constitution. Not up on her constitutional reading. But then by the middle of May, Kennedy made a crucial strategic decision. And this maybe lends some credence to his theory and to Axelrod's theory, which is this is a really gutsy move that Kennedy made. And it's the kind of gutsy move and risk-taking that presidents have to actually engage in. So in this sense, the campaigns actually do force candidates to make bold, risky, tactical moves that are somewhat similar to the kind they might make in office. Uh, I say that because for a long time, and for good reason, you can argue that campaigns incentivize candidates to show us qualities that have nothing to do with what you actually have to do in office. But Kennedy wasn't just going to address it. He was going to address it regularly and spread the word. If this religion thing was a live wire thrashing on the ground, he was going to grab it until all the energy was drained from the issue, a metaphor that actually makes no sense if you know anything about how electricity works. So don't go grabbing any electrical wires. It will not win you the West Virginia primary. Anyway, Humphrey and his supporters said they weren't the one making an issue of religion. That was Kennedy. With this, of course, was true. Kennedy wasn't he it wasn't taking umbrage, which, you know, is the feigned offense at something. But he was defending himself against a legitimate question. And in doing so, created the impression that Humphrey was pushing the story. And so you had Democrats wondering who was the more tolerant. And so you can wonder about in, in West Virginia whether Democrats cared about tolerance. Um, but to the extent that they did, it looked like a vote for Kennedy was a vote for tolerance and a vote for Humphrey was not. It must be said that while Humphrey was not taking directly aim at Kennedy's religion, his allies were doing some not-so-subtle things. Senator Robert Byrd, who was campaigning for Humphrey, uh, he was very much against Kennedy, would play his fiddle at Humphrey rallies. And one of the songs that he played, Give Me That Old-Time Religion. Dwight Eisenhower in the presidential contest had run political ads on TV, but Kennedy's ads in West Virginia were arguably the first pivotal ads in American electoral history. In these ads, they showed Kennedy interviewing coal miners in a suit in a coal mine, actually going down into the mine, talking about how uh, the situation in West Virginia was like the situation with textile workers who had been displaced in Massachusetts. The workers were sitting there in the hard hats and their work clothes while Kennedy stood in a suit uh, with his bare head. Teddy White in The Making of the President makes a really good point about Kennedy and these coal miners. He wrote, Humphrey, who had known hunger in boyhood, was the natural working man's candidate. But Kennedy's shock at the suffering he saw in West Virginia was so fresh that it communicated itself with the emotion of original discovery. We should note that between Wisconsin and West Virginia primaries, there was a little over a month, and Kennedy went to Montego Bay, Jamaica for 10 days after the Wisconsin primary. A candidate could never get away with that now, either A, going to a resort, and B, being off the trail for 10 days. In addition to the ad with the coal miners, Kennedy ran ads about his faith. 
in which he showed voters asking him questions. And these came up apparently, you know, at every stop a voter would ask him about whether he'd be controlled by the, the Catholic Church. Kennedy is known for his famous speech about his faith that he gave to the Greater Houston Ministerial Association in September of 1960. But this answer from West Virginia, which is in one of his ads, is stronger, it seems to me, and has more passion. Had there been cable news at the time, this response from Kennedy would have been all over it. Here is Walton Shepard, Charleston attorney, asking, in effect, how the senator's religion would affect the discharge of his duties as president. West Virginia, as you know, has uh, less members of my faith than any state in the United States. Population is about three or four percent. If I had felt that there was an inhibition in my ability to fulfill my oath of office, which I've taken on the five times I've been elected to the Congress, and which I took when I entered the service, then, of course, I would not have come to West Virginia. I mean, I'm not wholly uh, without some uh, judgment. And if I felt there was some reason why I could not answer your question, that I am as prepared and able to fulfill my oath of office as any other American, then quite obviously I would not have run in West Virginia, nor would I have run for the presidency, nor would I take, as I have taken on many occasions, the same oath that the President of the United States takes to defend the Constitution. Now, there is nothing in my religious faith which prevents me from executing my oath of office. If I thought that there was, I wouldn't take it. If I thought there was, I shouldn't be not a president. I shouldn't be senator. I shouldn't have been congressman. To be frank with you, I shouldn't have been taken into the service of the United States. Because on that occasion, in 1941, I also swore to uphold and defend the Constitution. Now, I have been in the uh, service of the United States. I spent three years in the hospital afterwards. My brother was killed in the war. My sister's husband was killed in the war. I'd like to know whether there's some opinion that I am unable to uh, fulfill my office of citizenship. I, there isn't. And I think that I wouldn't have come in West Virginia unless I felt that uh, the people of West Virginia believe in the Constitution, sec Article 1, which provides for the separation of church and state, and Article 6, which says there shall be no religious test for office. That's why Massachusetts was founded. Maryland, a good many of the southern states were founded on the principle of religious freedom. I believe in that. And we will have a chance to see whether uh, there is going to be a an opportunity to discuss the serious issues facing the United States in a very dangerous and trying time. I don't happen to believe that one of those serious issues is where I go to church on Sunday. In addition to running ads about his religion, taking it on head on, Kennedy deployed an extraordinary new kind of operation in West Virginia based on lots of volunteers. He had about 50 committed volunteers in the state to Humphreys 11. In addition to the people who would you know, show up at rallies, these were strategic volunteers. And this is how Teddy White writes about the nature of the Kennedy campaign and what was new about it. What distinguishes the new school from the old school is the political approach of exclusion versus inclusion. In a tight, old-fashioned machine, the root idea is to operate with as few people as possible, keeping decision and action in the hands of a few inside men as possible. In the new style, practiced by citizens' groups and new machines, Republicans and Democratic alike, the central idea is to give as many people as possible a sense of participation. Participation galvanizes emotions, gives the participant a live stake in the victory of the leader. That's what Kennedy was up to. Kennedy was also playing old-style hardball. Uh, it got pretty ugly in this campaign. While there were charges and countercharges that, that Humphrey was stirring up anti-Catholic sentiment, the Kennedy team was swinging its own 
bats at Humphrey's kneecaps. Robert Kennedy approved an attack of Humphrey's war record, or lack of war record. Kennedy's surrogate, Franklin Roosevelt, the son of the late president, called Humphrey a draft dodger for not serving in the armed services. Humphrey had explained that he had not been in the services because he had a hernia. Once the issue was splashed on the papers, Kennedy, who of course had a distinguished war record as a naval officer, uh, issued a statement declaring any discussion of the war record of Senator Humphrey was done without my knowledge and consent, and I disapprove of the injection of this issue in the campaign. Of course, that statement ensured that the story would be live for a few more days. But perhaps FDR Jr.'s biggest role was to be a character witness for Kennedy. He was a man of the people, said the ex-president's son. And this mattered because liberals thought Kennedy wasn't liberal enough and that Humphrey was more in touch with the regular guy. So here's a Kennedy ad quoting FDR Jr. In other talks, FDR Jr. has said, John Kennedy has the same heart, the same feeling for the people as my father. He is picking up where my father left off. Remember this when you vote on May 10th. Vote Kennedy. So if you liked FDR, you would like JFK. Humphrey kept hitting away at the matter of Kennedy's personal wealth. He couldn't take him on on religion. And he referred to his opponent's literature and advertisements as, quote, the most lavish, extravagant, and expensive campaign program West Virginians have ever known. It's up to the voters, Humphrey told an audience in Pineville, if they want his campaign decided by measurement of money that can be expended or the philosophies of the candidate. There are three kinds of politics, Humphrey went on to say, the politics of big business, the politics of big bosses, and the politics of big money. And I'm against all of them. I stand for the politics of the people. He also, Humphrey lashed out at Bobby Kennedy, comparing his tactics to the late Senator Joseph McCarthy. I'd suggest that brother Bobby examine his own conscience, said Humphrey, about innuendos and smears. If he has trouble knowing what I mean, I can refresh his memory very easily. It's a subject he should want to avoid. The thing he should want to avoid is the comparison to Joe McCarthy. Back and forth got so heated that President Truman had to weigh in. Now, boys, don't hurt each other. That was the message Truman said he had conveyed to the candidates when he was interviewed out on his morning walk. On the 7th of May, the two gentlemen participated in a debate or something approximating a debate. Kennedy had refused to debate Humphrey in Wisconsin, arguing that their positions were essentially the same and there was no point in waiting in, in having a debate in which they could just express their similar opinions right next to each other. But in West Virginia, he decided to take on the fight. And listen to how Kennedy, in this debate, makes the case for primaries as the best way to pick presidents. So he's trying to defeat Humphrey, but he's also trying to elevate the value of the prize. And then, through a really tidy sleight of hand, elevates the victory and the whole process, not just from being a proving ground where a president can show his medal, but that the primary is a necessary educational opportunity that a president must have to be effective in office. So those other senators who weren't even bothering with the primary and hoped to be just named at the convention wouldn't have this experience that Jack had from going around and meeting face-to-face -face with people. And because the presidency is the people's office, as no other office is, it is my judgment that any candidate for the presidency should be willing to submit their name, their fortunes, their record, and their views to people in primaries all over the United States. West Virginia has such a primary, and that is the reason that I am here. I did not have to come. I came of my own free will. 
there are no delegates involved, a setback here, a defeat, would be a major one. But nevertheless, I came, and I must say I am extremely glad I came. I think this is the best experience and the best education that an American political leader can have, whether he serves in the presidency or serves in the Senate. Kennedy is saying that unless you've been out with the people, talk to the coal miners and widows of veterans, you can't govern the nation. It was an educational process for the candidate where he could learn the difference between Charleston and Charlestown, but also speak with specificity about the number of cans of powdered eggs a family would have to live on when the father lost his coal job. And any president who hadn't done that was not fit for the office. As an aside, when we talk today about the role of technology and automation in the economy, it's a familiar story. And here's how history repeats itself. The problem that West Virginia is facing is the problem that all America is going to face. That is the problem of what happens to men when machines take their place. We produce more coal than we did 20 years ago in West Virginia, but there are thousands of men who mined in 1940 who can't find a job. What is happening in the coal industry in the last 10 years in West Virginia is going to spread all over the country. When a machine takes the job of 10 men, where do those 10 men go? What happens to their family? Kennedy went on to win the West Virginia primary in a 61 to 39 percent landslide and took 50 of 55 counties. Humphrey withdrew from the race that night, and Kennedy went on to win the nomination at his party's convention and defeat Richard Nixon, of course. The West Virginia primary not only showed that Kennedy's youth and inexperience didn't block his ability to command a winning operation, but it offered an opportunity to do something else, to expel a demon, in this case, the idea that he was controlled by the Catholic Church and unelectable because of that. He proved that he had the political skills to combat that idea by basically facing it head on, by not trying to skirt his big weakness, his big Achilles heel, but by elevating it and then slaying it and having slayed it proved, or at least could make the case, that it was something voters shouldn't care about. Now, he, of course, didn't slay it completely. He had to go on and give that speech in September addressing the Catholic issue. But he needed to have slayed it sufficiently to convince Democrats that it was a possible thing to do. It reminds me a tiny bit of the giant slayer theory of the Carter campaign in 1980 against Teddy Kennedy. The idea is let this big challenge happen so that we can overcome it and that will make us look all the more glorious. That was a slow-moving strategy that failed miserably. In this case, Kennedy chose to grab the religion issue and take it on head-on in real time while things were moving and shifting under his feet. Okay, that's it for West Virginia. This is a great campaign that we will return to in many different ways, including the, of course, famous Nixon-Kennedy debates. But for now, I'm off to go do my own debate prep. I'll be back with you in a couple of weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at whistlestop at slate.com. And also leave us a review on the iTunes store. Helps us spread the word and it gives your host something to do while he's trying to break his writer's block. Remember our sponsor this week, The Great Courses, the modern political tradition, Hobbes to Habermas. Order from one of the eight Great Courses best-selling courses, including the modern political tradition, and you'll get 80% off the original price. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop, thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. 
Our producer is Tony Field. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who has never worked in a coal mine, but does go deep down into the archives to find the best nuggets in history. I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. I'm John Dickerson. 